Have you guys seen the Chicago rat hole? No. no. It's just a rat that fell on some cement, but people are going to like worship it and like they've started a fake religion with it. And it's just like a rat, poor rat died on the cement. And oh, it's just... it's, is it like an impression of a dead rat? Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like uh, to visit so there. People, yeah, <laughs> I, I'll make that uh, pilgrimage. Yeah, really. Yeah, apparently someone in the neighborhood was so annoyed with people going to visit the rat hole that they tried to fill the rat hole, but then oh. people fixed it and now the rat hole's back. Sacrilege. <laughs> it's a haunted rat hole. It's a haunted rat hole. <laughs> Speaking of haunted rat holes, welcome to Under the Pendulum. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, welcome to Under the Pendulum. And you guys know us. I'm Chris, there's Heather, there's Caitlin. I, it's me. Woo! <laughs> oh my god it's you <laughs> so concerning this new rat based religion do you happen to have any literature uh, not yet sir but we <laughs> will be We're, it, it's, it's hot off the presses soon I'd I'm like sure to know somebody's more. on it <laughs> oh yeah because it's sort of like a church of spaghetti monster kind of deal right yeah mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. yeah Rat I was you. I was getting like the the Saint Mary of Clearwater vibes from that. It. That was exactly Especially what came to mind. God. The sabotage. Can you believe that shit? That was crazy. And then those kids broke it. Yep. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, in Clearwater, Florida, there was a a, a car a, a car lot that yeah a dealership yeah. that you could buy cars it and some water stains appeared on these windows and they looked like oh a um, a portrait of the Virgin Mary or like her silhouette vaguely. loosely at best yeah vaguely <laughs> and then it became a church yeah there is they set up little chairs outside in that parking yeah. lot it it did become a <laughs> pilgrimage site because people would travel from other countries to see the the stain on the glass and like right Florida right Mecca yeah right after the new metal you know phenomenon then some kids going over there probably listening to the devil's music and they broke that shit Limp Biscuit. Yeah. that's what I bet that I was wondering what your opinion was on what they were listening and that's gotta Great be stuff, it you know <laughs> yeah it's so funny though because I was around the time like um, where I was like a little younger you know and um, mm -hmm. I think all all the all, every kid in Clearwater was trying to take credit for it like yeah man it was I'm us. sure yeah, no like, fucking yeah, way we, we did it with oh, BB God. guns and just like maybe it was me Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> if it was just a really little old lady and she walks away and winks. <laughs> <laughs> no false idols. And her eyes turn red. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so we're here. We're ringing in the new year. And it'll oh, yeah. probably be a cursed year. I'm, you know. No, the, don't the, say it. The it's trajectory kind of hasn't been great. Uh. <laughs> I mean, more for society. I mean, like, I feel like it might be a pretty good year for me personally, but yeah. Oh, good. Excellent. You know. Chris. I'm glad you're feeling that way. But I think us as a whole are cursed. Yeah. All signs point to it, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So this episode is all about cursed and haunted objects. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so most of us have heard of some of the infamous objects in spaces. Uh, from the evil doll Annabelle, which now resides behind a protected case. Oh my God, fuck those people. Oh, the Warrens, yeah. yeah. The Tomb of King Tut comes to mind as well. Um, oh, it's yeah. a pretty famous curse, you know, where some people died after it was opened. Mm -hmm. There's a great documentary called The Mummy, and I think uh, Brendan Fraser's in it. I, I really highly recommend it. I think it's like actual footage of going into one of those, you know? Oh my God. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Excellent. It has a Scorpion King. Narrated by David Attenborough. I think it's Ken Burns that who did that one. That was excellent. 
And here the ancient pharaoh rises. So these haunted and cursed objects even extend to the internet, to things like the smile dog photo, uh, which is said to be deadly to anyone who stares at I it I never too heard long. of this. I read this in the notes and I'm like, what the fuck is that? Did you go look at the smile dog? Let me look smile, at it. Smiley dog. Come on. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a smile dog. It's, yeah, it's goofy. I've, I've seen some like modern art pieces in the Denver Art Museum that looked somewhat similar. <laughs> oh my god. It's a painting. It's just an it's internet a, photo. It's like a Photoshop. That, yeah, it's job. all doctored up and it's just a dog that I mean it looks creepy for sure. It's like kind of creepy looking, but Oh, that's so stupid. Put it down. <laughs> put it down. Don't look at it too long. Okay. It looks like a pig. <laughs> I just saved your life, my god. Thanks, Christopher. You're the best. <laughs> So similarly to supernatural forces of the past, such as fairies, trolls, goblins, and spirits, these objects can have influence on our lives, often for the worst. But how and why do seemingly ordinary objects and spaces become imbued with such power over our lives and fates? How does that happen? It stinks. So what makes these objects? (laughs) It stinks. It stinks. Yes, everything stinks. (laughs) So what makes these objects and spaces cursed or haunted is often propelled by their backstories. So as author J.W. Ocker notes in his book, Cursed Objects, Strange but True Stories of the World's Most Infamous Items, quote, a cursed object is an object that gathers stories to itself, and more specifically, tragedies, unquote. So these stories that are attached, whether true or not, bring it out of the mundane and ordinary into the extraordinary. And cursed and haunted objects often become synonymous in many of the online lists where you just see the same ones every mm-hmm. all. Yeah, time. it was so irritating. I yeah. was so surprised. When you're trying to find ones that are a little different, it's kind of hard. Yeah. But there is a distinction between cursed and haunted objects. Ocker points out that haunted or possessed objects have an intelligence, which cursed objects just don't. Um, haunted objects, you know, they'll act kind of like a haunted house, right? A spirit is, has invaded the object and uses the physical manifestation to participate in our lives. And sometimes through a simple act like speaking to something more sinister, such as violent attacks. Ooh. But cursed objects are just kind of vessels or vehicles for bad luck and misfortune. Yeah, You know, they, they don't really set out to be destructive. They just kind of are that way, like a, like a fire. Mm-hmm. Poor guys. Yeah. <laughs> but just misunderstood. so while a haunted or possessed object can enact misfortune on someone um as ocker points out quote if it's just spooky it's not cursed wow wow them's fighting words in the haunted object community yeah if it's just a doll that's like hey buddy hey but doesn't do anything else it's you know it's not cursed it's not cursed my name's talking tina yes he's talking tina i don't like you yeah possessed yeah Straight up. (laughs) Straight up possessed. (laughs) So with that distinction out of the way, let's talk about a few cases and examples of cursed and haunted objects. Well, don't mind if we do. Number one on our list. But I will say (laughs) I was very, very disappointed that there weren't more famous objects that had ghosts accompanied with it. That was a bummer. I really thought that. And in a lot of like, you know, the objects are... I don't know, like the stories are usually really hard to find the validity of, you know, especially the historical ones. 
You know, I've yeah. I've I was looking up one which was kind of cool. It was like this little figurine that an archaeologist mm-hmm. found. And they were saying the person who dug it up, it like killed everybody in the family and had a curse. See, that's um, awesome. But then the archaeologist is like, no, I actually found it in the 70s because they were saying like somebody dug it up in the 1800s. <laughs> and he was the one who discovered it. And he's, he's like, like still very I'm much fine. alive. Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> Heather, I think you're you're up first. Yeah. I'm going to talk about the haunted wedding dress. Oh. Haunted wedding dress. Yes, she's beautiful, isn't she? My daughter, Stella. <laughs> <laughs> so, our story begins at the Baker Mansion in Altoona, Pennsylvania. To explain briefly, the industrial estate was built by Elias Baker, starting in 1844 and finished in 1847 to 1849, depending upon where you look. Okay. It, it took a while to, to finish. The Baker family, Elias, his wife, Hetty, their two sons, David and Sylvester, daughter, Anna, and a fourth child, Margareta, who died at the age two of diphtheria. They lived in the mansion. Oh my God. Diphtheria, huh? Is, what, what, what one's that? Is that the poopy one too? <laughs> I, think you, I think you can get it from, from feces. Yeah. Oh. These goddamn kids keep getting pink eye. It ain't good. I don't know if you get it from anywhere else, but yeah. It's an infection caused by strains of bacteria called cornobacterium that make toxin. It doesn't tell you how you get it. It's an infection of the nose and throat that's easily preventable by a vaccine. Of course. Anti-vaxxers. Yeah. All of them. Yeah, you shove it. <laughs> you shove it. <laughs> Let the diphtheria flow. <laughs> well, Elias was an iron master who purchased the nearby Allegheny Furnace in 1836. And this is an iron furnace that would extract iron from mined ore. Oh, I see you. Yeah, it's a big old furnace made of brick. Um, it was only the second done in Pennsylvania. It's it's kind of a big deal in Pennsylvania. It's a historic Damn. furnace. <laughs> All right, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds pretty fun, actually. I would really like to do yeah, that. Yeah, looks, looks kind of cool. If you're going to have a furnace, buy an Allegheny furnace. That's right, Allegheny <laughs> furnace. Where's the gift shop? <laughs> so, along with this purchase of the furnace and the rich resources in the surrounding area, this allowed Elias to build his industrial town where he employed workers that lived and worked within this complex. Oh, no. And kind of as an interesting side note, it's a lot like Ludlow where it was a self-sustaining situation where workers were only paid in company scrip. And if you remember, that's a currency that's only valid at the on-site general store. There's lots of ways to get fucked in the ass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we, we, you know, we talked about the cold field wars um, that were yeah. happening in, in, in Colorado. Um, but stuff like that was happening all over the country. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it wasn't just, you know, isolated to the no. Southwest. It was, I mean, uh, actually, I think Pennsylvania was one of the worst ones for strike breaking. Yeah. Isn't, isn't there that song, I gave my soul to the <laughs> 15 That's tons it. of what do you get? Yeah. <laughs> See, tale as old as time, I guess. Absolutely. In America. <laughs> well, the last of the Bakers lived in this mansion until 1914 after daughter Anna's death. And this mansion remained closed until 1922, when the Blair County Historical Society leased it until 1941, when they were able to purchase it, and it is now a museum that is still running today. Oh, I would look up pictures. I bet it's gorgeous. 
The mansion, it, it it's like based on neo-Roman architecture. There's like these huge columns in the front. It's a pretty crazy looking wow. building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Old house fever, man. I got it. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. It's a real problem. Yep. <laughs> So besides numerous accounts of the mansion being haunted by the Baker family members in general, our story today only concerns Anna. The story goes that 18-year-old Anna came back to Altoona to visit her family in 1854. And while she was visiting, she fell in love with one of those hot, manly steelworkers under her father's employ. (laughs) He's on the front of the calendar, you know? (laughs) Well, Anna knew her father would not be happy about his daughter being in a relationship with one of his lowly workers. So she kept this courtship a secret. No matter how chiseled his abs are. (laughs) Or stinky his musk. The two spent two years engaging in secret rendezvous and sending letters to each other. The young man finally proposed to Anna, and she accepted without hesitation. They planned to marry out of state in order to keep their union secret from Elias. Anna even went so far as to buy her perfect wedding dress. Well, some other employee at the steelworks snitched on them, and Elias was pissed. Ooh. Yep. And according to the story, the young man was fired, and Elias threatened to kill him if he ever showed his face in town again. Don't you ever show your godlike chiseled face in this town again. That's right. He was jealous. (laughs) God, he smells like soap. (laughs) Elias then went on a tirade and raided Anna's room, destroying any evidence he found of the two's love affair. He also forbade her from ever speaking to him again. After this, Anna fell into a deep despair, and she wouldn't leave her room. She ate little and spoke even less. Oh, that's what the dad wanted. (laughs) (laughs) It was the the 1850s, so. It's like, great, she never leaves and she doesn't talk. (laughs) (laughs) But still, Anna held on to that wedding dress. Was she holding out hope? Well, in 1864, Elias died, and Anna thought that she might now rekindle that old flame. But she was heartbroken to find out that her beloved had moved on and had a family of his own now. Bastard. Yes. How could you do that to Anna? <laughs> Legend has it that Anna spent her remaining days locked in her room. Maids and servants would only see her through the third floor window from then on. Whispers told of Anna being seen sometimes dancing around in her room in her wedding dress. And she was endlessly crying to herself. It's my big day. It's my big day. It's my big day. Bridezilla. <laughs> Did this inspire great expectations, you think? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Interesting. I keep thinking of that lady. Well, by 1907, she was the only living baker left in the mansion. And she died alone there in 1914. The sightings of Anna's ghost began not long after. Her specter could be seen through her bedroom window, and she could also be heard crying up in her room. When the mansion became a museum, her wedding dress was put on display in a glass case. Some visitors have claimed to seen the case move when they were viewing it. Perhaps it was Anna trying to put on the dress? Well, unfortunately, the dress was taken off display in the early 2000s due to damage caused by the elements. The elements? They have it outside? Well... 
this is a pretty spooky story, yeah? Yeah. 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 Sad, sad girl, sad girl ghost. None of it's true. Oh, uh, what? <laughs> what? It says that the Warrens had it. That's you mean crazy. the oldest romantic trope isn't a true story? <laughs> I was going to say, ghosts are always fucking wearing wedding dresses. <laughs> it's always their big day. You never, you never know when your big day is going to come. <laughs> you just see the ghosts in the wedding dress like, big day? And they're like... <laughs> I am freaking out. <laughs> From evidence gathered by her personal letters and diaries, Anna actually had a good relationship with her parents throughout her life. She also liked to travel, and she went to school out of state. She did, however, have a man in her life that she loved and lost, but he died of a long illness, and Anna was not able to make it home in time to see him before he passed, which left her heartbroken, and she actually never did marry. It is thought this romanticized story of a forlorn Anna was invented to explain why a rich and privileged woman remained single for her entire life. It's the only way. Trauma. (laughs) Trauma is the only way. (laughs) Rumor has it that this tragic tale also was fabricated to potentially attract more visitors to Altoona. It's always usually the case, man. I'll do it. Mm -hmm. Well, according to a member of the Blair County Historical Society, the dress had actually belonged to a woman named Elizabeth Bell. Wasn't even her dress. Nope. I'm just, I, my realities have just been Outreach. shattered. I know. I'm I'm sorry. Just yes. Lied to all the time now. <laughs> Elizabeth Bell was daughter to another Iron Master in Altoona, and she actually wore it in 1830. And this dress was simply displayed in the mansion to showcase period garb of the time and is in no way connected to Anna Baker at all. So somebody was just like looking at it and they're like, hey, hey, you know about this dress? Some sad bitch was crying in it. She died in it. <laughs> Let's put it up in Anna's room. Yeah. See what they say. <laughs> I mean, that is cool though that they have a, a, you know, a wedding dress or a garment from the... Back then? Uh, I mean, probably from it's before beautiful. 1830s. I just took a picture. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as for the seemingly supernatural movement of the dress, that has also been explained away. The glass case and dress would move in the presence of visitors due to the loose floorboards and the drafts blowing through them. And that's Uh, why we had exposure to the elements and things like that. The old loose floorboards and drafts routine. And the family of rats. (laughs) (laughs) Making it look like it's breathing. That's fun. Yeah. However, the tale of poor Anna Baker and her haunted wedding dress remains, only adding to the mystique and eeriness surrounding the Blake Mansion. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That was great. Just just being lied to every day. (laughs) Every turn. Uh, I had a feeling this episode was going to be just a pack of lies. (laughs) <laughs> I know I couldn't handle it when I was researching. I did. I did think that the Mary Todd Lincoln dress was also haunted, and they are. It is said that you um, see her kind of hanging around it. I think it's in the Smithsonian Ooh. or something. But that's the only next to the Hope Diamond. That was like the only historic thing I found that I was like, oh, Mary cool. like hangs out all around. Man, Mary Todd Lincoln is like seen fucking everywhere. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Mary, stop fucking everywhere. tension whore gone (laughs) wow so yeah you just pulled the brakes out on this story 
I know. I know. I, I you know, I couldn't in good conscience not uh, not provide at least some of the facts here. No, that yeah. Yes. Is your heart broken into a million pieces? <laughs> it's also that story is, you know, you, you just see it recycled. Like I I think we've seen this exact yeah. story in our St. Augustine episode. Yes. But it just ended differently. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, well, always, kinda, always yeah. a lady that wants to marry somebody they're not supposed to marry, and tragedy befalls them every fucking time. That's right. So you watch out, ladies. That's right. Well, that I, it was nice to see the dress. It really was. <laughs> yeah. I liked the dress. I liked it was the a dresses. pretty dress. Well, what do you got for us, Kate? <laughs> All righty. So for mine, I chose an object that I learned about in um, my African art class in college, and it's called Nkisi Nkande. Oh, yeah. So this Nkisi Nkande, um, when I first learned about it, it kind of reminded me of, you know, just like a the basis of of what a voodoo doll must be. It like kind of looks similar. Oh, okay. They're usually um, they're usually like a wooden figure. They range in size, but they're usually um, covered in nails. I mean, hundreds of nails. Oh, yeah. yeah I've seen those. Yeah, I saw a picture of this. I, I didn't investigate it, but... They're fabulously beautiful. I've always really liked the imagery a lot. So though it's not really haunted, it, it kind of is a spooky thing in general. And um, as I'll kind of illustrate, it's it's got like a spirit inside. Okay, of so it. it has like a supernatural connotation, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I would I, I would say that that places it in the the haunted possessed realm, you know, oh, or yeah. or possibly cursed. Yeah. Like voodoo dolls are kind of a curse in a way, right? Absolutely. And just like a voodoo doll, like even though I, I kind of came across a lot that says that there's a lack of legitis- legitimacy to voodoo dolls, but I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. But yeah, that's a whole thing. There's so many of them out there, which is the interesting thing. But um, the Nkisi comes from Central Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Also, I just want to say that I just totally loved African art. Like that was one of my favorite classes. Just all of the objects are incredible. And most of them are not by one artist, but they're like attributed to a community. So that's even cooler. Yeah. Just like the, the connection with, um, spirit and life. And then also just the imagery of ancestors and afterlife is really prevalent Mm. in it, which is super cool. So, so whole communities work on like a piece Mm-hmm. They, it's called like cumulative artwork or process artwork as well. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So you could have a, an Inkisi or your entire community could have one and it could be giant in like a town square. Oh, neat. Yeah, that's a cool concept. Yeah, they're they're awesome. And they look scary and badass. So anything can be an Inkisi. It's a vessel that holds powerful and meaningful objects. They are used for taking oaths, striking deals, healing, and most importantly, used to destroy evildoers, other witches, and righting wrongs. The type of Nkisi I'm discussing is called a Nkisi Nkande, also known as a power figure. Their appearance is striking and somewhat terrifying. They are typically a wooden statue of a warrior or hunter in an aggressive action pose. Ooh, aggressive action pose? Like they're going to grab you? Yeah, they are. They like usually like have like a hand coming up like to strike or like oh, to oh, for, for like a spear or something. Of like that Karen Black movie, um, Tales of Terror from the seventies. Yes, 
Well, the and little, that's another little tribal, really like, yeah. like, I, I, I. so there was this I fucking article I read in college that I wish I could have found, but it really talks about how African art was made into a horror trope and all of yeah. these things by like 1930s Hollywood. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Even the radio shows. Yeah. And that had been being done in, in the literature in like the 1800s, you know, with yeah. like the heart of darkness, you know, idea and theme that like. The evil mm-hmm. things come out of uh, out of Africa to, um, you know, to taint civilization, white civilization. <laughs> I saw someone mention that when I was researching it, the Heart of Darkness. Yeah, yeah. Like, isn't that the Lion movie? That crazy Lion movie? Oh uh, no, whatever? that's uh, Ghost in the Darkness. Yeah, the Heart oh, of Darkness. I mean, okay. it was it's like a, a concept, right? Of like the the far away. African land and then the dangers within it, yeah. Othering and stuff like that. All racist stuff, obviously, but colonial, yeah, yeah, colonialism, racist, like, jargon. I'll have to share some of the articles that I, you know, once I track them down from school, because they're really interesting about that kind of intersection of, you know, Westerners making African art horror. And it's really just because a lot of things were um, about the dead and, like, uh, huge... Huge ancestor worship, huge into just, you know, consulting ancestors and having ancestors like around through like effigies and then their actual like bones mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it, it, it wasn't only nails that would be in them, it'd be any kind of sharp object. So anything that could be driven inside of it. And then it would also have like pieces of um, cloth that were tied in a knot or like pieces of an animal that all represented something. So I, I kind of, just to make this a little bit clearer, I kind of just uh, took an ep- excerpt from um, a website called Smart History where a couple, you know, art historians just talk about how how it would have worked, okay. how you would have accessed an Nkisi spirit. The insertions are driven into the figure by a nanga, which is a priest, and represent the mambu and the type of degree of severity of an issue can be suggested through the material itself. A peg may refer to a matter being settled, whereas a nail deeply inserted may represent a serious offense such as murder. That's kind of, so it's like a tally thing to, uh, uh, in a way, I guess, with the pegs. Yeah, huh. someone someone put it as a, it's like a, it's a social document kind of thing. Oh, that is super which interesting. I was, yeah, that's a cool it's concept. It's really, yeah. And because, like, you know, art is usually so much about one person mm-hmm. making it. Yeah. And, yeah, I love that about this. But anyway, so prior to the insertion, opposing parties or clients, so someone who would have gone to the priest, um, often lick the blades or nails to seal the function or purpose of the inkisi through their saliva. Like licking a stamp. If an... No, just <laughs> yeah, the sign's sealed the nail. baby. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if an oath is broken by one of the parties or evil befalls one of them, the Nkisi Nkondai will become activated to carry out the mission of its destruction or divine protection. The Nkisi was dormant when inactive and needed to be awakened and made angry and irritable in order to be effective. (laughs) Poking it. This was... They've been poking it. Awaken, to poke awaken, it with a stick. Awaken. Gotta poke that bear. Uh, this was activated by loudly insulting it, jeering at it, and most importantly, driving a nail, a screw, 
a metal blade into its wooden body. I think that would wake me up too. Yeah, that'd make me mad. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like you're driving nails into me. You don't have to <laughs> insult to injury. Well, goddamn it! I got this splitting headache. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. These actions goaded it into action and told it what to do. Different nails achieve different results. A long, thick nail accompanied by a solemn and weighty bow, knotting a length of string around it, bound those words in the inkisi and ensured that the inkisi would enforce them. A flattened square blade marked with a declaration of loyalty, while a sharp pointed one instructed the Inkisi to uncover and inflict horrific punishments upon the offender. So it's so crazy. Like, so I, it's such a cool concept because you bring up how it's sort of like a a personification of like a document, right? It's it's like a, yeah. a material. I mean, they're not like paper, right? But then it's um it's also got like again like voodoo doll kind of qualities to it. Yeah. Um, well, and that was like another really important aspect of the Nkisi. Uh, there was something called a condu gland that they would basically have medicine or some kind of object that would bring about the power. And like, I feel like that's also like, you know, with a voodoo doll, like having an object from somebody to kind of like, yeah. you know, give this this thing purpose and power. So I guess when Westerners came into to Africa and started really stealing works of art and things like that, a lot of times the thing that was in the condu gland would be removed to take the power right. away and like not make it so anybody could use the Nkisi kind you of know, thing. You know, it's so, f- so funny. Um, a long time ago, back at our human sacrifice episode, um, I know you weren't there for a cape, but we talked about the leopard, um, the leopard oh, people yeah. in Africa. And they wore oh. these little pouches that were, uh, they called it medicine. But, you know, it was obviously this this concoction made, you know, they said it was made from like people and then some other ingredients, but they would wear it around their necks as uh, as a kind of charm, right? And it would have different kind of magical protective properties. Uh, But also a big part of it was like imbuing them with some power. Uh, It's like kind of a supernatural power. Um, So this kind of seems like a very similar concept in that way, especially when you talk about the condu or the the condu gland, I believe, is what you said. Yeah. Uh Um, so yeah, it's kind of, kind of interesting, right? You, you see it, you see that idea in different communities, um, but like kind of a similar cultural idea. Absolutely. Like, I don't think that this is directly linked to the production or the invention of a voodoo doll. Cause I think that there were other objects that were kind of more direct with that. But again, it's that consistency through like, you know, the regions that there would be, yeah. you know, an object like this. I guess the last really interesting thing about it is the condu gland is always covered in a mirror or a sheet of glass. And that's because um, in in the, the Congoese, people believe that um, the above world where the sun is and above the water, that's where the living are. And then under the water is where the spirit world and the dead are. So the glass basically keeps the spirit inside acting as like the surface of water. That's oh. pretty cool. Isn't that neat? But yeah, I couldn't find... Any accounts of what actually happens to you when you have an Inkisi come after you? But yeah, apparently people, you know, missionaries. There's there's lots of statements about how terrified people were yeah, of them. I wonder how far back the practice goes. Um, I mean, it said the 14th century. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's probably older than that too. I would I'm I sure. would imagine it's probably oh, like, yeah. you know much older in some way. 
We'll definitely post a picture and they're the most gorgeous art object ever. Wow. That's awesome. That's, you know, it's also really cool about that too. Um, it, it, that idea of a uh, cumulative um, art. Was it, was that what you call it, Kate? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's just like, I don't know. And I guess that's maybe the difference between like Western, Western culture and maybe some other cultures um, is like how like individualistic we are. And, you know, and especially yeah. Western culture, like it's not so much about the, the whole as, mm-hmm. as maybe it once was. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, so you see that's still alive. Um, and it, it's just such a cool concept. Yeah. I feel like throughout African art, it's just this huge sense of community and it's really, really beautiful. Yeah. So, I mean, we all saw that. I mean, we saw that movie. Uh, which one was it, Heather? Tales of Terror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to watch that now again. <laughs> yeah. He's just like a little cannibal. I, I just, it's like, I love that movie where it's the angle where like the actor's holding the doll. And they're trying to like, and that's when you when you really know your acting's got to be on point it. when you're trying to make it yeah. look like it's attacking make a you, break, baby. <laughs> I like that movie. It's a oh yeah, it's super fun mm-hmm. anthology of three stories and Karen Black stars in each of the stories, so it's it's great. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. And you might might remember Karen Black from uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. House she of a Thousand Corpses. Mama Firefly. <laughs> oh right, yeah. yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. that's right. Oh my god. Yeah. I think I've had a watch again. It's been a while. Yeah, I just watched it this past year. I, I still love it. I, it's a very divisive movie in the horror community, but I don't give a fuck. I like it. That's right. Who's <laughs> <laughs> so sassy, Heather? I beat my own drum. <laughs> That's right. So I kind of went a, a little bit of a different direction, but I, when I came upon this, I immediately just was, I loved it. I thought it was so cool. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. I'm excited. I'm going to be talking about medieval book curses. So I want to start out with an excerpt from a 16th century manuscript. So quote. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, I mean, we're going to summon things after the show, you know. Yeah. (laughs) So quote, should anyone by craft or any device, whatever, abstract this book from this place, may his soul suffer and retribution for what he has done. And may his name be erased from the book of the living and not be recorded among the blessed. Oh my Can we insert a uh, sick-ass solo? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, though that's the six, from the 16th century, which is kind of the tail end of the Middle Ages in some places, um, the history of book curses is an incredibly old practice as I've come to find. Oh, that's so exciting. So the kind of idea is like the margins or any other free space in a manuscript that a scribe was working on. Originally, they would kind of make notations there. Like, you know, maybe um, talk a little bit more about a passage or maybe their thoughts on a passage. Yeah. Um, Usually it was like religious works, right? But these spaces kind of became a place where scribes started writing anything that came to mind. (laughs) And these entries really give us a look into their personalities and lives because a lot of them are anonymous. We don't know who some of them are. Yeah. And, you know, they would write things like jokes and complaints and recipes and general just musings. (laughs) Brother Francis gets more bread than I do. (laughs) But sometimes they would even write curses. (gasps) So before we get to the curses, we're going to have to talk a little bit about the Middle Ages and the church. I really try to condense this, but I'm really bad at it. So I fucking yeah, love it. I know. God, it's so ridiculous. I love that I shit. I tried to so not much. make it so painful. 
<laughs> yes. So the Middle Ages was a time of constant change and shifts of power. For many regular folk, the church was a respite and a place of safety amongst the chaos. And the church was also a place of relative safety for knowledge. So churches and monasteries became repositories for many historical, philosophical, and literary works for the Western world. And, you know, we enjoy some of those ancient works from the classical age today because medieval scribes copied them down. Hmm. Had they not, the histories, poetry, plays, and scientific knowledge from the past might have been lost to time. Were they the real MVPs then? I mean, (laughs) obviously the Middle East was like the place for like literature and writing for a lot of um, time. (laughs) Um, But I'm not going to mention any of that since we're talking more about medieval Europe. Yeah. It is fascinating though, yeah. But yeah, sure. I mean the middle the Middle East, they were repositories for a lot of the knowledge that we have. I mean, a lot of scribes would write stuff from works that we got from the Middle East, you know. Yeah, that's cool. Anyway, as Drogan points out in his book, Anathema, Medieval Scribes in the History of Book Curses, even a badly made book with many errors might be the only copy of a work in existence. And this kind of highlights the main idea is how valuable books were in the Middle Ages. A book was the result of months or years of hard work, from the procuring of the book by means of pledges and large deposits to the decoration and binding. The process was intensive till the end. Those shits were like a car, man. Those were like a state-of-the-art VCR. (laughs) (laughs) A state-of-the-art VCR. You don't just loan that out, right? No. No, no. So books and the knowledge contained within were so valuable and fleeting that many scribes carried around little notebooks um, known as Enchiridions to jot down as many notes and information as they could if they just so happened to encounter a new book. Wow. And sometimes these notebooks might be the only reference to a now lost work that survived through the years. Whoa. Yeah. That's so cool. So, scribes were often just as valuable as the books themselves. Because the labor of creating and copying books was so laborious, so tedious, and debilitating at times, this made them even more valuable, especially to the ones making and writing them. So, let's talk a little bit about the scribes themselves. So, one scribe named Florencio jotted down his feelings. Sorry. God, my voice is cracky. Do you need a sip of water or something? Oh, I could use one, actually. Would you like fries with that? (laughs) (laughs) so one scribe named Florencio jotted down his feelings about the work of a scribe after completing a manuscript in 945 he wrote quote he who knows not how to write thinks that writing is no labor but be certain and I assure you that it is true it is a painful task it extinguishes the light from the eyes it bends the back it crushes the viscera and the ribs It brings forth pain to the kidneys and weariness to the whole body. Therefore, O reader, turn ye the leaves with care. Keep your fingers far from the text. For as a hailstorm devastates the fields, so does the careless reader destroy the script and the book. Know ye how sweet to the sailor is arrival at port? Even so for the copyist in the tracing of the last line. Unquote. Yeah. And that's a pretty common complaint. You know, in, in... and the thing about a lot of these um, notes that you see in a lot of the manuscripts, a lot of them are recycled. Sometimes a scribe might read um, one of the notes from another scribe and be like, oh, I like what he said. And yeah. he would kind of make it his own. And this is a very common 
string of complaints about how hard it is on the body. Sounds like a desk job, am I right? Oh my god! Right. I mean, that was me writing these two pages for the goddamn podcast. I should have taken his advice. God, (laughs) I I worked a desk job for like six months, and I was like, "Oh, my back." (sighs) Twenty years, baby. Counting. (laughs) (laughs) It bends the back. It does. Maybe that's why I have. You gotta just read that to your employers one day. It's crushing your. It's crushing your viscera. Yeah. I'll just get a print of it written in old English and hang it above my desk. There you go. Hey Heather, how you doing? How's your day? Just point up to it. Look at Bless that. You. So there were many factors to what made the labor of a scribe so torturous at times. So one of those was the conditions in which they had to work. Scribes in monasteries often worked in unheated rooms. And this was the case in England until the 14th century where they didn't have really any writing rooms or scriptoriums as they they were called. Uh, Some just sat at a desk nestled between the arches of the walkways that surrounded the monasteries. Yikes. So if it's like cold out, that sucks. Yeah. Get your shit together. Yeah. God. <laughs> I mean, you, you'd have little protection from the elements. You know, your clothes and maybe a screen between the arches might be all that you have. Yeah. And you like think about asking for heater, but then you just go self flagellate your, yourself and forever even thinking that you could ask. <laughs> I was being greedy. Like, ooh, the infection's making me warm. <laughs> Is it hot in here? Is I feel hot in here. <laughs> So many scribes also worked in very poor lighting as candlelight could be disastrous, destroying the copy and the original, which was called the exemplar. Oh, boy. They also worked in relative silence. The only sounds from the scribes may be them reciting the text to themselves aloud as they worked. And it was probably more of a mumbling. And groaning and pain. Just come make me come out here every day. Chuckles. But that's like really isolating, right? Like you're not talking to anybody else, but maybe yourself for hours. They're like ripping ass really loud, though. And, you know, that's fine. (laughs) God made it, baby. (laughs) (laughs) So they just were stooped over their desk for hours, their hands cramping and their eyes straining. As one late medieval scribe wrote in the margins of Alfred's De Temporibus Ani, maybe manuscript. God help him minium handum. Translated as God help my hands. Egan waved and glopping glogan. So they were given their task by the elders or the higher church officials, and they were expected to do it. This could be one scribe alone working on a manuscript from beginning to end, or the work was divided amongst a few scribes. You also would not have a say in what you worked on. If you objected, you could be deprived of wine and food. And if you fly, not my precious yeah, can of beans. Not the wine. <laughs> Anything but the wine. <laughs> <laughs> so if you flat out refused, the punishment could be harsher. One case mentions a scribe being chained to his desk until he finished the work. Oh. Can you put little chains on my nipples too? Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very extreme. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Kind of mean, right? Yeah. So mistakes were considered a great sin. So the texts were often proofread by the elders. <laughs> An error in a text, if not caught, could be left in the finished copy and then recopied again and again. Kind of like a horrible game of telephone. Just yeah. changes the piece over time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if a monk did not handle a manuscript with care or made an egregious mistake, 
a flogging might be in order. Damn. In this note found written in a manuscript, one scribe pleads to the reader to take care of the book lest he be flogged. <laughs> Quote, If this book of mine be defiled with dirt, the master will smite me in dire wrath upon the hinder parts. On his butt. Just a good old-fashioned spanking. It's bread, not breed! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So not only was it laborious, but the pressure was very immense to copy and care for the text. I'd say so. It is estimated that it took a day to complete four pages. Uh, So a Bible, for instance, could take a year to complete. That's working Mm -hmm. six hours a day, six days a week. Oh, my God. I mean, and that doesn't doesn't sound too bad, right? It's like six hours, but that's six hours stooped over a desk and poor lighting. fucking candlelight. Yeah, maybe if if somebody was that, you know, (laughs) if they would let you do that. Sounds pretty chill. Do they got benefits? (laughs) Uh, What's your guys 401k like? (laughs) And usually scribes are also not paid very well. Neither were illuminators, too, or or the um, artists who did the miniatures. Weren't paid a lot. Mm-mm. Gosh. So a manuscript with miniature artwork, colored initials, and illuminations could take several years to complete. Scribes were also often expected to know and be involved in the entire bookmaking process, from prepping the leaves to writing and stitching the binding. It, this sounds like it sucks and it's hard work, but scribes did enjoy it. it. It was really important and, you know, I mean, they enjoyed what they did. Yeah, I guess it was meaningful. Yeah, sense of I mean, accomplishment. Yeah, and you might be one of very a handful of people who read a text. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I I was just mentioning to Chris earlier the the movie The Name of the Rose. Everybody's got to watch it. All of our listeners, it's awesome. It's a uh, Sean Connery and Christian Slater, like in a, a murder mystery about illuminations and books and libraries. It's pretty great. The self-flagellation is very, very fun. Oh, that guy, that's the best part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Monk's butts drive me nuts. <laughs> I need to get that sticker. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a little earlier about how valuable books could be. And I can't really stress that enough. Entire towns were put up for barter for one book, as was the case of a Bavarian official who promised the ownership of an entire town to a monastic community just for one manuscript. Wow. They declined wisely as the official probably just would have taken the town back by force. (laughs) If you borrowed a book and did not return it, you could also be taken to court. So valued were books that copying a work without the owner's permission was akin to embezzlement. And people could even lose their lives. A scholar's books were burned in 1525 and the culprits were summarily hanged. Book theft could also come with the death penalty if you stole it from the wrong person. So it almost makes it sound like a mafia situation, you know? Yeah, no shit. Well, fuck. Books are, like, super important. (laughs) Eddie. Oh, Eddie. Oh, he stole a copy of the Odyssey. Oh, don't break his legs. (laughs) Go break his legs. (laughs) So I think we get the point on how valuable books were, right? To the medieval person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To a monk or scribe, Books were valued like treasure and protected as such, sometimes even more. And it was unthinkable to loan out a book without some sort of deposit or pledge, which often worked as a contract with notaries. I was going to say, how many kids were traded for books? That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, kids make great binding for a book. (laughs) (laughs) So most books were protected under lock and key. 
or chained in such a way as to allow one to read it but never remove it from the premises. But these measures could be circumvented by a thief, so there was one more recourse, putting a curse on it, placing it in God's hands and under his protection. So the idea of asking for a deity's protection of an object or space has to be nearly as old as the belief of gods and spirits themselves. Humans have in various ways pleaded and placated the gods for their assistance, whether it be for a safe journey, abundant crops, or protection. In more ancient times, we see this often on burials or tombs. Drogon gives us an example of a curse laid on the coffin of a king of Sidon who died in 350 BCE. This curse reads, quote, I, Tabnith, priest of Ashtart, king of the Sidonians, son of Eshmunazar, priest of Ashtart, king of the Sidonians, lie in this coffin. My curse be with whatever man thou art that bringest forth this coffin. Do not, do not open me or disquiet me, for I have not indeed silver. I have not indeed gold nor any jewels. Only I am lying in this coffin. Do not, do not open me nor disquiet me, for that thing is an abomination to Ashtart. And if thou do at all open me and at all disquiet me, mayest thou have no seed among the living under the sun nor resting place among the shades, unquote. Wow. The longest do not disturb sign. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, they had a little more flair back then. That's right. <laughs> oh, man, I wish I could have put that on my uh, door as a kid. <laughs> yeah, no shit. If you touch my turtles, you will have no seed among the living. TLDR, <laughs> do not disturb. <laughs> So it's not surprising then that curses, which were often reserved for someone of great value or power, would translate to something of great value and power. Curses from ancient kings would have been something to fear, as many were believed to have some divine qualities or lineage, if not being a living god. So for the medieval person, monks who would add a curse to a book might well be heeded as they were servants of the Almighty. Ah. Book or textual curses go back to at least the 7th century BCE, often threatening death or the wrath of the gods. But once we get into the medieval age in Christianity, one of the ultimate punishments was excommunication from the church, also known as the ultimate punishment. Dun, dun, dun. So these curses came to be known as anathema in church Latin. As the curses expanded to misfortunes other than excommunication, they became known as book curses or maledictions. Curses were sometimes added to manuscripts as a matter of church or monastery rule. These curses could elicit biblical punishments and fates for any thief or miscreant. And these could include things like the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, the beheading of John the Baptist, or by the rope of Judas. Not Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. Sounded kind of fun. I don't know. <laughs> Pillar of salt, sign me up. <laughs> it, seemed like, it seemed like everybody in those towns just fucked anything that walked in. Yeah. So it's like you know, two hot angels walk in. They're like, bring them out. We want to fuck them. Oh my God. Everybody's got to watch the Brad Neely comic of that. Oh, I love- <laughs> Professor Brothers is so funny. Yeah. So medieval superstition and the very real fear of God in the church was often enough to make a potential thief think twice or someone handling it to take great care. And to make sure the reader knew the stakes, anathemas were often placed at the beginning or the end of a text. So medieval anathemas started as gentle prodding for the reader to take care of the book, but they would evolve to become more threatening and harsh. And now we can get into some of the anathemas. Hell yeah. 
So this is from the monastery of St. Emerim. Quote, I read Eminem. <laughs> <laughs> Lose yourself in the book that you know. Oh, sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> and they blame it on Marilyn. <laughs> so, quote, If anyone takes this book from Emerim without permission, may he fear the judgment of the Lord. Whoever takes this book and does not afterwards return it in good condition, may he do penance forever as his just reward. In good condition. You know, some librarians got that shit like framed, like ironically (laughs) in their office. Read the side. (laughs) So that's a pretty tame one. That's one of the more tame ones, right? Yeah. So this is uh, from a scribe in 1270. Quote, If anyone unfairly, this scribe puts down, in hell's murky waters may Cerberus him drown. Oh, love it. So these get very rhymey. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they kind of become like little incantations or like almost what we think of as like a witch's spell. (laughs) Just kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So from the 11th century at the Abbey of St. Peter in Salzburg, quote, the curator Peltholt, who made this book, offers it with joyful heart in order that it may be an expiation for all sins committed by him. But may he who steals it suffer violent bodily pains. Oh. And may you have a tummy ache. It took a, a, a hard left yeah. turn. <laughs> Nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea. And may your ankle hurt and swell. <laughs> so this is an undated one. Quote, Who steals from me rightly, hit with a rod mightily. Oh, I bet he was so proud of himself. I'll bet. <laughs> <laughs> so here's another one from the year 1461. Hanging will do for him who steals you. Wow. Pretty pretty to the point. Yeah. Ouch. Don't steal the books. It hurts my feelings, mister. From (laughs) Hugh, the abbot of the Abbey of Loeb's in Germany, in 1049, wrote on the last page, quote, All those who do not books return are thieves, not borrowers, and earn the punishment justice demands, the sacrificial loss of hands. May God therefore as witness see that it be done unswervingly. Ooh. Unquote. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. There once was a man from Nantucket. <laughs> <laughs> Who stole a book and tried to fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> so this one's from the 13th century. The finished book before you lies. This humble scribe, don't criticize. Oh, it's starting to turn into a rap. Oh, shit. Dude, scribes Damn. had flow. Whoever takes away this book, may he never on Christ look. Whoever to steal this volume durst, may he be killed as what accursed. Somebody get drop a beat. Whoever to steal this volume tries, out with his eyes, out with his eyes. <laughs> I can't beatbox. I'm so sorry. That's okay. <laughs> That's beautiful. I'm just fo- trying to focus on my rap career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I'm scribing right now, but I'm really working on my on my rhymes. You know, working on my mixtapes, <laughs> straight bars. <laughs> so this is a one from an anonymous German scribe. Quote, This book belongs to none but me, for there's my name inside to see. To steal this book if you should try, it's by the throat that you'll hang high. Ooh. And ravens then will gather bout to find your eyes and pull them out. <laughs> and when you're screaming, oh, 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 remember you deserved this woe. My favorite. Unquote. Yeah, that one's fun. <laughs> wow. So bodily harm was one way to scare a potential thief. <laughs> but the threat of damnation in hell was also very poignant. Yeah. 
to most medieval minds, hell wasn't a concept or a metaphor. It was a really real place. Yeah. <laughs> so one scribe in 1172 wrote, quote, If anyone take away this book, let him die the death. Let him be fried in a pan. Let the falling sickness and fever seize him. Let him be broken on the wheel and hanged. Amen. <laughs> Amen. P.S. And poop bottom. God, Thanks. I just want to, I just want to say something like that when they're like, "Oh, I'm sorry, Miss, we're out of uh, oat milk." <laughs> <laughs> Let you be fried in a pan, and a falling sickness and fever seize you. <laughs> May you be smote if you do not get my oat. <laughs> and uh, uh, what aisle is soap on? What aisle is soap on? Thank you. <laughs> so this one's from the monastery of San Pedro in Barcelona. Quote. For him that stealeth, or borroweth, and returneth not this book from its owner, let it change into a serpent in his hands, and rend him. <laughs> let him be struck with palsy, and all his members blasted. Let him languish <laughs> in pain, crying <gasps> aloud for mercy, and let there be no surcease to his agony, till he sing in disillusion. Let bookworms gnaw his entrails in token of the worm that dieth <laughs> not. And when at last he goeth to his final punishment, let the flames of hell consume him forever. Unquote. And then, and then let him, and then, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then put forks in him. And then, and then he slides on doo doo. And then he, he's also like, stop trying to read my diary. <laughs> <laughs> but many went to the point, um, thinking that the death penalty was a fine punishment for the crime. Um, and this is from uh, an abbot of St. Albans in the 15th century. Quote, If anyone steals this book, may he come to the gallows or the rope of Judas. Unquote. Dang. So pretty short, sweet, to the point. Yeah. They really hammered that uh, hanging home. That must have been quite unpleasant, huh? <laughs> so I think we get the point. Anathemas began very simply, but expanded in length, specificity, and cleverness. And this always just depended on the scribe and how creative or lazy they wanted to be about it. It also gives us another window into the minds of these laborers of the word. Yeah. So one of the earliest surviving anathemas, and this has elements of basically everything, um, was written in 627. Quote, Therefore I entreat God and angels and every nation of mankind, whether near or far, that no hindrance presumes against my work. If anyone acts against my work with his hands, would that the eternal king take this cursed person and lower him into the lowest level of hell to be tortured with Judas. Let him also receive by the hand of God the cruelest plague, and both he and his sons struck with leprosy so that no one inhabit his house. However, if he pays the double value of the work in money, let him be absolved. Word. Yes. Do you know how fucking hard I worked on this? No fuck. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, sure. Okay. Double the yeah. money. Oh. Yeah. Is that a is that a twenty? Okay. Throw another <laughs> yeah. twenty on there, baby. We're good. God, I am in such a better mood than I was just a few moments ago. <laughs> <laughs> so anathemas would not just be um, evoked with religious works and other literary texts, but they kind of made their way into charters and legal documents. Um, nice. You can, you can find them in some, and they're basically the same as we've heard, you know. Um, yeah. Instead of the responsibilities to take care of the book, it focused more on the participants of the contract to uphold their end of the bargain. God, I hope, like, in some terms and conditions, nobody ever reads that there's something like this worked in there. <laughs> <laughs> 
amazing. (laughs) And maketh you three late payments. May you suffer agonizing leprosy. (laughs) What? (laughs) And may collectors come uh, with with their steely forks and poke you. With sharp teeth. May your loan never default. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to write something for the end of this that was profound to wrap it up. But I found all my attempts compared to Drogon's pathetically limp. So I'll let him take the end here. Quote, The heyday of the anathema is now half a thousand years behind us. No longer does the handling of a book invoke the wonders of disembowelment or damnation. Gone are the rack, the gallows, even the killer pigs of the Rhine. Open a book today and you realize how an eloquently deep past has become a shallow present. Where once echoed the fury of God, now lies an insipid whimper. A fine of five cents per day will be charged. Unquote. Damn. So what was the pig part again? What I know. It one? sounded very fucking uh, 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 Monty Python. Gone are the rack, the gallows, yeah. <laughs> even the killer pigs of the Rhine. Yeah, there was, there was one where it's just like basically <laughs> pigs will feast upon you and your body will be disposed I'm just saying we got to open a pub called the killer pigs of the Rhine. <laughs> that <laughs> is an amazing pub Lovely. name. Lovely. Oh my god! <laughs> Shepherd's Pie, Bangers and Mash, whatever you want. Actually, not a bad band name. Yeah. <laughs> People in like like robes take your order. Oh <laughs> hell yeah! Describe it. So yeah, that was medieval book curses. And you know, I would say of all the cursed objects that we talk about, this one actually kind of has like, uh, well, not really cursed, but the effects of it could actually be detrimental to your life. Yeah, yeah. You could actually die if you fucked with the book back then. Yeah, you you might actually want to heed the curse. That's the closest Mm -hmm. thing to true. (laughs) (laughs) They're just so funny, though. I mean, just like, there's so many of them. Such drama queens. (laughs) I know. I just can't get the image out of the guy blowing a horn out of his ass. That's like an old illumination, like all the fucking (laughs) hilarious ones. Oh, it's like a Bosch painting, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's all types. All types were, were these guys. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's like a whole other thing too, like the weird illustrations, right? Like oh, yeah. a lot of scholars yeah. think that they're just weird medieval jokes. Like inside yeah. jokes. Yeah, that mm-hmm. we just don't kind of get the context for it, you know, anymore. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to end on a silly note as well. What I'm going to talk about is a piece called The Hands Resist Him. Oh, shit. Ooh. I forgot. And I'm so excited. Yes. <laughs> The Hands Resist Him is a painting that was painted in 1972 by artist Bill Stoneham. It is a spooky image depicting a young boy and a girl with black eyes standing in a home against a glass door that is very dark on the other side. There are a number of hands reaching towards them from the outside of the glass. It is certainly a compelling piece that makes the viewer feel uneasy. Yeah, it, it, it's, um, it's a little creepy. Yeah, yeah, I came across it too. I was like, that's really strange. Yeah, it's it's a weird, weird little painting. Mm-hmm. Well, this piece is cursed, according to some that have come in contact with it and who have owned it. Bill Stoneham is still alive today, and I'm not so sure he's completely sold on that notion of it being cursed. And he hasn't completely denied its power either, but I get the feeling he's pretty amused about the whole thing. And he's played into the legend it has become, for sure. When I was reading on his website about you know, what he he would talk about the painting a little bit and, you know, claims made. He, would, he wouldn't, he would like, go against it, but he wouldn't back it up either, so. It's like the, pa- the painting made me drink and drink and drink and then my, li- <laughs> my wife left me and it's all the painting's fault. 
I was <laughs> constipated at the time. <laughs> O'Bill himself has this to say about the painting's inspiration. Quote, There are memories, echoes of all the life within a place. Maybe it's what's called channeling. When I painted The Hands Resist Him in 1972, I used an old photo of myself at age five in a Chicago apartment. The hands are the other lives. The glass door, that thin veil between waking and dreaming. The girl, doll, is the imagined companion or guide through this realm. It's my freaky little friend. Yeah. (laughs) It's a pretty straightforward explanation of what the painting represents to him. But the strangeness surrounding the piece only became clear after it left his hands. Interestingly, the original gallery owner who displayed this painting and an L.A. Times art critic who reviewed The Hands Resist Him, along with Stoneham's entire show, were both dead not long after coming into contact with it. And it definitely wasn't the oysters they were serving that night. (laughs) And some accounts say they were dead within a year, and others say the two passed in the late 70s to early 80s. And the latter seems to be more um, accurate. Oh. This piece was eventually purchased by actor John Marley from that very art show, and he passed away in 1984. An actor? Yeah. An actor passing away? What? He was old, and he died of complications from surgery. Uh, Very curious. (laughs) The hands resisted him, huh, from not doing the surgery right. God damn. Every time oh. I get close to him, my hands just cramp up. Ugh, I can't uh, do surgery. Yeah. Nope, I slip. It's over. <laughs> I'm the only cardiologist. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, years after this, a couple obtained it from a picker that salvaged it from an old brewery. It had been abandoned back there. Nobody knows why. <gasps> after having it displayed for several years, they put it up for auction on eBay. Owning this piece had become a nightmare for the couple, as strange things started to happen surrounding the painting. A disclaimer was posted on the listing, claiming the piece was cursed. (gasps) The listing reads as follows. (laughs) Quote, Warning, do not bid on this painting if you are susceptible to stress-related disease, faint of heart, or unfamiliar with the supernatural events. By bidding on this painting, you agree to release the owners of all liability in relation to the sale or any events happening after the sale that might be (laughs) contributed to this painting. This painting may or may not possess supernatural powers that could impact or change your life. However, by bidding, you agree to exclusively bid on the value of the artwork with disregard to the two last photos featured in this auction and hold the owners harmless in regard to them and their impact, expressed or implied. We do not take MasterCard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> they go on I to know. say go, sorry what's that I was just gonna say that some guys were like finally I was getting so bored of all these eBay descriptions <laughs> <laughs> well they go on to say when we received this painting we thought it was really good art a picker had found it abandoned behind an old brewery at the time we wondered a little why a seemingly perfectly fine painting would be discarded like that Today, we don't. One morning, our four-and-a-half-year-old daughter claimed that the children in the picture were fighting and coming into the room during the night. That's pretty spooky. Now, I don't believe in UFOs or Elvis being alive, but my husband was alarmed. (laughs) To my amusement, he set up a motion-triggered camera for three nights. After three nights, there were pictures. The last (laughs) two pictures shown are from that stakeout. 
After seeing the boy seemingly exiting the painting under threat, we decided the painting has to go. Please judge for yourself. And wow, good marketing. Right? Yeah. I it's was a like, wonderful listing. Yeah. Now, whether the couple was sincere or the listing was beautifully crafted in order to engage more interest is anyone's guess. Nonetheless, it worked like a charm, and the painting ultimately sold for $1,025 after being viewed by some 30,000 people. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. The buyer was Kim Smith, a gallery owner in Michigan. Now, Smith claims that they, too, have had odd experiences surrounding this piece, and it is currently being stored, only brought out for the occasional private showing. Smith hasn't received a purchase offer serious enough to be considered. They've oh, received, like, mobile, like, three-figure oh, offers, yeah. and they're like, no. No, no, so, no. Even ghost bro Zach Baggins himself has tried to obtain the painting for his haunted museum Guys. Oh, my God. Zach Was he going to fight the curator? <laughs> Damn. Let me buy it. I'll fight you for it. <laughs> I got to see this guy. I still don't know who the hell you guys are talking oh, about. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, just look him up. He's you, you might recognize him when you see it. He's Ghost okay. Hunters. Is that the show he's yep. on? Yep. He's, yeah. he's a disease. Oh, he's fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is he the one that he's like, I don't know why, but I can't stop drinking this whiskey. <laughs> it might be, yeah. <laughs> okay. Ghosts are making me do it. Yes. Uh, well, Zach was no doubt intrigued by its lore and its impact on not only those who have physically come into contact with it, but even on those who simply looked at it. Many who have viewed the piece, even in print form, have reported a feeling of illness. And there are claims that there are electronics went haywire shortly after. Oh, One person shit. reporting hearing an exorcist voice and feeling a blast of hot air in their home after seeing it. Pooch. And pornography just started popping up on my wife's computer. <laughs> <laughs> Following the hands resist him rise to infamy, Stoneham was commissioned to create three more paintings that belong to this series. They're all pretty cool but I don't think that they possess quite the level of spookiness as the original. Ghostbro has one called The Hands Invent Him, currently displayed in his Las Vegas museum. And Zach may have commissioned this one because he couldn't get the original. Uh, that's like what? giving yourself a nickname. Right? What a poopy butt. <laughs> <laughs> Although the evidence of this piece being haunted or cursed is mildly interesting at best, the sensationalism that the eBay post created around this piece has put the hands resist him on the top of any hot haunted objects list. Yeah. I think it's a cool painting and an interesting story, but my absolute favorite thing about it is this eBay listing. Yeah, that is a, that's a super fun listing. I know. I, that part where she's like, we don't believe in aliens or like Elvis or anything like that. And then she goes on for like 10 more minutes about more conspiracy theories yeah. and like things she does. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my God. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I was really curious about that. I'm really happy to know that. I wonder how much she actually wants for it. She probably won't sell it. No, <laughs> I'm guessing she doesn't probably sell a, it's it. It's probably a draw. And, you yeah. Know, it yeah. probably will be worth, I mean, yeah, a lot once yeah. she's gone. Mm -hmm. I assume so. Man. That's cool. This lady, the post is just, mwah. <laughs> I know. She's probably going to add, and don't even get me started on Fauci. <laughs> wow so those are some some good haunted and cursed objects huh i would say so it's a nice uh menagerie 
I am interested in learning more about the Hope Diamond, though. Like that, that shit actually sounded kind of crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to look into that a little bit more as well. Like a lot, a lot of people died and it was like gotten in really fucked up way and stuff like that. Yeah. It's a big ass diamond. It is a big ass diamond. People want that diamond. And it, and just, it has been cut down. It was originally much larger than that. I'm like a toddler. I just want to put it in my mouth. I don't know why. <laughs> I just like something so tasty. Re- something so like big and valuable. I just want to like <laughs> ring pop. Good. <laughs> Blood gem. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, I hope everyone out there is having a uncursed new year. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I hope so too. We got some big changes coming in the way. That's right. Um, but follow us on all the social medias. We don't need to say them. We're on the Instagrams, on the Facebooks, the TikToks. All the shits. The Twitters. Yeah. Ah, well, thank you for listening, everyone. We'll be back with another one and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. You can do it, me. <laughs> <laughs>